What's up, Achievers? I have been having an interesting couple of weeks over here. At times, it felt like I was filming a sequel to Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Uh, first, my wife had to go to the emergency room via ambulance last Tuesday. Uh, we were there until 5 in the morning doing testing and blood and, and uh, all kinds of good stuff. And then uh, she ended up having surgery on Friday. Um, don't worry. She's okay. She'll live. She'll live. Me, I'm not so sure. My, uh, my poor old heart can only take so much excitement, and uh, I'm feeling a little pushed over the top right now. Um, after the hospital campouts and the overhyped winter storm Juno, I booted up my computer to edit this week's show, and my hard drive appears to have some sort of unrepairable failure. Whoopee! So much fun we're having now over here. Anyway, by some combination of planning, dumb luck, and maybe providence, I had managed to back up all my shows and working files to an external hard drive, and thank God I did, because if not, you would not be hearing what you're about to hear right now. There's some other stuff that happened that involved me sleeping on an air mattress in my office and leaky roofs, but hey, we've all got problems, right? So, all's well that ends well, or is it? Stay tuned, friends. Stay tuned. This week on the show, we've reached the final hour of my three-part interview with my lifelong brother and friend, Mark Solomon. If you've not listened to parts one and two, please go back and do that. Uh, Trust me, there are stories in there that you're not going to want to miss. Tales involving yellow zingers and chocolate milk and Speedo bathing suits and skateboard ramps, keyboard failures, and so much more. So do that. And uh, I'm actually going to be traveling in a couple of weeks to Florida with my wife to visit Mark and his special lady friend, Stephanie. And who knows what crazy schemes we will come up with next. In the meantime, while I'm bracing myself for my next uh, personal setback, why don't you just sit back, relax, and enjoy this, the conclusion to my interview with Mr. Mark Solomon. So the crucified, did you guys, you never did a national tour, did you? Uh, the closest, closest thing we did to a national tour was we did three weeks with, um, XL, XL and DVD XL. Mm -hmm. Uh, he rode in an RV with us. We had three weeks booked of which there were nine shows and uh, (laughs) nine shows in three weeks. Sure. Um, Three a week. And then, yeah. Killing it out there. Just crushing it. Yeah. No overhead at all. Just, you know. (laughs) No gas. Nobody has to eat. Food to eat. Yeah. We were all much thinner then. Except for XL, he's just uh, kind of always been a big fella. Hence the name. Sure. XL. So what region was that in that you guys did that? I don't really remember. I mean, I know I mostly went to the Midwest and it was, it was kind of a, it was chilly as I remember. So Mm -hmm. it might've been in the winter, but um, I think we played, that might've been the tour that had the Fort Wayne, Indiana show that was really weird with the kid on stage playing air guitar and like all these like 
really scary bikers and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there's, we did a few runs over the years, but we never, we never really toured. That's something that a lot of people don't ever understand. You know, they always, I was just having a discussion with somebody on Facebook the other day that, you know, uh, the crucified was much bigger. Like, dude, I I don't want to bum you out, but Stavesacre sold a lot more records than the crucified ever did. And we sure as heck toured more. I mean, it's not even close, you know? So, yeah, there wasn't a lot of being on the road with, with crucified. It was usually runs to, to cornerstone and back, you know, or maybe a run up to like Oregon for the show with you. But, uh, most of our most of the shows we played were just drive down from Los Angeles or from from Fresno to play in Los Angeles and Orange County, right? And maybe San Diego. Now you played with us, uh, so that was like the early '90s, and you played mm-hmm. with us in Washington, and then we played with you on our West Coast tour. We played with you in I think Anaheim um, with MXX. Okay, yeah. Now was yeah that, that would have been the was that the that end? was the last was that yeah or were those reunion shows or was that like. Was that a reunion show or was it? Uh, kind of. It was a reunion slash farewell show. I mean, you know, we had, I had moved to Los Angeles in 93 and um, still pursuing my uh, world uh, identity crisis egomaniac tour. Um <laughs> And known as Native Son, and uh, ironically named Native Son. Oh my gosh, if you've ever read the book, I defy any white liberal to read that book. But I'm surprised um, that uh, you brought that up, because I was going to let you off the hook. I'm not afraid of that thing. I'm just, it just sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's no big deal. <laughs> Mark Solomon made a rap record, everyone. It's called That's Native right. Son and the Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm going to post the cassette cover to that on the blog so you can all Oh, yeah. <laughs> My friend Paul Cruikshank hates the cover of that thing because <laughs> we had all this time where we all, well, everyone hates the cover of that thing, but we were all walking around Los Angeles trying to take pictures and do this kind of, um, try to manufacture a, a group feeling, really, <laughs> which is really what existed. was happening. <laughs> and it didn't, you know what I mean? It was, it was such a sham, dude. I was so full of myself and, and perpetuating my own, you know, bullshit, really. I mean, there was just no, there was nothing behind it. You go from the crucified that had all this, like, whether or not the songs in the, in some of the early lyrics were, were, were dopey. I mean, I was 17. What do you want? But, you know there was something behind the crucified and there was nothing behind native son except my own desire to, you know, uh, a love for successful on my own braided hair and bucket hats. That's really what I took out of it. (laughs) I mean, I used to wear, you know, people talk a lot of trash overalls. Don't forget the overalls. Let me tell you something right now. And this is a fact. (laughs) All right. This is the early 90s. I want every person who gives me shit about the overalls to show me what they were wearing in the 90s. The clothes were not hot, okay? <laughs> I was wearing shorts with long johns under them and Doc Martens. There you go. You know what? You're also one of the few people who admit that they wore shorts with long johns. There's, there's, there's the start right there, you know? 
this is the time of of the red hot chili peppers and you know what i mean like everybody was all mixed up and screwball and like i was (laughs) i'll say this for you at least you didn't do the one up one down overall thing you you had the sense at least to have it all buttoned up (laughs) no 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 Uh, you know there was this group that a lot of these this this band from fresno called black fly or black fry that played on um that played all over the native sun record and I mean, honestly, the music, I thought there was, there's definite quality there. There, You know, the mix is good. All those types of things. It's just, it, again, I'm not a musician. So what am I really contributing except for my wonderful voice? It's like, please, you know, and like the AWOL guys were on there and they were fully and completely not needing to be on my record. They should have been doing their own album, you know. All that was happening. Erica was singing. I mean, she had a great voice. It's just, it was just, that's what happens when you get so full of yourself that you can't even see what's really going on, you know? And and it really did, like, it was the beginning of the end for not only myself, but also the Crucified. Like, we were wrapping it up anyway. You know, there's a lot of dissension in the band. The guys were, you know, we were all sort of bickering and fighting and not really enjoying each other's company at all. Mm-hmm. And what, what was the, like the central theme of the disagreeing? Um, an overall lack of mutual interests. <laughs> I mean, Greg was, was fully pursuing Applehead and like his own, you know, his solo stuff. No one ever really mentions that, but. You know, I, I, and I don't have any problem with the Applehead records. I thought, you know, that's a pretty good little little record. It's just, it wasn't the Crucified, you know. But he's like, he was obsessed with classic rock at the time. Hmm. We'd be in, in, the, in the studio trying to come up with songs in Jim's basement trying to write music. And, you know, he's playing <clears> Greg Iron Man. was, he's <laughs> playing like, you know, all these classic, but not, he just loved the skill and the art required to do that. And that was what he wanted to do. So instead of like finding a way to incorporate that, we just sort of like resented it or something. I don't know. (laughs) And then, you know, Baloo was doing the chatterbox thing, or at least was kind of going in that direction. He was really into like that more mechanical, I don't want to say industrial, but you know what I mean? Like that, that heavy, Cause it was always still, that was still the era of where everything's just constantly getting faster and, and heavier or whatever. And where do you go with that next? You know, a lot of the, the, the guitar parts on the, the next album that the crucified was writing, the guitar parts were so similar to what ended up being the chatterbox record that it would have represented a completely different and full departure from what we had started off as. Yeah. Right. Those last, then, there was those it, last couple songs, right? Like Power of God and uh-huh. what was the other those, one? Those, I, I honestly, the Power of God and Straining Life, I thought were awesome. I mean, I loved those songs. But, you know, right while that's happening, you know, those were the first two songs that we wrote of the new batch. And then everything else we were doing was just sort of just never came together. We, we recorded a, a song. Um, I honestly don't even remember the name of it right now. We recorded the music to this other song, Loss, and it never it never finished because it was I could never come up with anything that really made sense with the music, you know. Right. Um but we also we ended up you know, we're down there at Ocean Records who had completely just failed us on every level. I mean, you know, I loved the people involved with that record label. 
You know, the the people behind the scenes, they were very nice to us. But I'm sorry, man. Freddie Pirro, um, I just don't know what that guy was up to. You know, there's all this talk about how so-and-so wants to buy the band's contract. And, yeah. you know, we had a person at the label telling us that this was going to happen and, and that Freddie had turned down an offer from this record label, that record label. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the Eddie Windrick thing, like it just something was very weird and he was obsessed with create with finishing his studio. So all of our needs and interests were just way down the, the pipe on that. It just, you know, every, didn't didn't that one record get like lost somewhere for years? Like you guys couldn't find the tapes. Uh, uh, you talking about, you talking about pillars or are you talking about the, the, the three songs or whatever? The... No, I thought it was pillars or something. Like I remember like when we were trying to reissue the one record, mm-hmm. like, we, okay. no one knew where it was. And it was like, well, that's, I'll never get it back. No one, and we can... <laughs> I'll tell you right. What no one knew was, was the numbers. Okay. Right. Word records took over distribution for ocean records. And I never once saw a single royalty statement. Those people are the biggest criminals. It's like unbelievable. It's literally as as simple as, "Hey, uh, you put out our record, right?" No, but you're you're holding it. It has your logo on it. Don't know what you're talking about. Like it was that blatant of just just thieving. They were they were horrible, and. And everyone was like, what is, how is this allowed to happen? You know, praise the Lord, brother. (laughs) It was. And so when, when, you know, when tooth and nail decided to do the reissue of all that stuff and, and, you know, when when that was happening, which was cool, it was a chance to get a a decent record cover (laughs) for pillars, like, and, and, and get a a remix, you know, because the mix was so bad. I mean, we, we recorded the entire pillars album in six days of which halfway through we were Again, in the priority of Ocean Records, halfway through recording Pillars, we got kicked out of the studio so Hiroshima, the jazz band, could come in and do like a couple songs. And then we had to come back in and try and reacquire our sounds. So, you know, all those those things were happening. Let me tell you what it really was. And and this is my, my honest belief. It's when God shuts the door, man, he shuts them all. He doesn't just like, there's no doubt. When when he's putting on the brakes, they are on, and right. you can keep trying all these different avenues, solo records, this and that. They're just the brakes are on. Yep. The record wasn't lost. It just Freddie just didn't want to do anything with it. We had to buy the tapes back from him for eight thousand dollars, and bake them because they were stored improperly. Yep, uh, and then. You know, it just, there was just, that was, that was a the residue of the end, you know. And and then that's when I turned into Nebuchadnezzar and I lost my mind. <laughs> How long did it take before that time period and the genesis of uh, what became Stave Zager? Because I remember your, your first show at Cornerstone. Remember that first cassette or whatever it was mm-hmm. you got? Was it a cassette? Am I remembering yeah. that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Three song cassette. Yeah. Um. So what was like, how did that all come about? Well, I mean, I talk about it a lot in, in my book, Simplicity, so I'm not going to, I just, I went nuts, dude, you know, I was, I lived in, in my truck and on couches and, you know, that's called homeless, by the way, for two months, <laughs> three months, you know, I was yeah. a mess. 
Um, and uh, I thought I was pretty much done for. I had moved to, to the San Fernando Valley. I had no friends. I had burned every single bridge. You know, everybody all in, these, in the movies and in the stories, it's always this romantic, like, oh, he got strung out on drugs or whatever. You know, no, nope, none of those things. I wasn't, there was nothing romanticized about my my descent to hell. It was all selfish, petty narcissism. And, you know, I thought I was done. I thought I was out of it and never going to make music again and realized it was one of the only things I ever really truly wanted to do. And for a couple years there, it was just like, I didn't know what was next. And I was trying to do this. And even Baloo and I talked, he moved back down to Los Angeles from Fresno and I remember having a conversation with him like, hey, man, we should we should try to do something again, you know, and he's like, Mark, you want to do rap music, man? And I was like, no, I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> and he didn't believe me. You know, I love rap music. I did. I, I, I loved like there was that was that was what I listened to t- constantly because it was the new punk rock in my mind, you know, and just like but I had. I got that right on out of my system, which is why it was so bad. You know, you don't right. have punk rock. You don't have punk rock in your system and then you lose it. You don't have rap music in your system and then you lose it. It's just what you're into or it isn't. You know, it was uh, never that way for me, but it was that way for a lot of people. I think, you know, the, that era of like the Powell, like uh, videos, it was always like punk and hip hop. And, and um, mm-hmm. that was just kind of a thing. A lot of the skater kids uh, who were from the punk scene got heavy into all that music and, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. It was I never just, my thing, but I mean, not, even, totally even those character, I don't think for the time period, that's for sure. Yeah, no, that was just my, that's the thing is that it depends on the person. Like here's a perfect example. Some of the only people to reach out to me when things were so bad was the rap community, like, <laughs> or hip hop community, whatever we call it. Like Rene Vasquez, uh, freedom of soul, peace, five eighty six. that dude would call me and come and visit me when I was, like batshit crazy walking the streets in the middle of the night, you know, having a real hard time. And uh, Pigeon John, um, the AWOL Society guys, those dudes came and picked me up and took me out and did stuff with me. Or otherwise, I would have had no contact with anyone that I knew for uh, well into a year. Just silence, you know. So in all of that, it, it does bear repeating. Like, I sort of, you know, was just just going down, down, down. And right when I th- sort of thought things were over, I swear, man, Wayne Everett uh, called me up. He was, the, he was in the band The Prayer Chain at the time and took me down to Orange County to a show. That was right when The Crucified had broken up. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me there was all these people that I, that I, I did know and maybe I could see them again someday. And then, and that sort of started a little seed. And then, um, like I said, you know, Rene Vasquez, he, he came and picked me up one night, took me down to Muddy's Cafe in Orange County. And in, in, I think it was in Huntington Beach. And uh, we, we watched these bands play. One of them was called The Killing Tree. And um, I'm hanging out there. And, and, and lo and behold, there's Tim Mann, who, who, you know, he was in this band Focused. And we had played all these shows with him. And, you know, Jeff Ballou knew him really well. And he's like, hey, man, we have an apartment. Uh, we need a roommate. Do you know anyone? I'm like, no, I don't know. You know I'm paying like <laughs> $600 a month, which at the time was astronomical for a dude alone with a shitty job. 
you know, washing windows. He, he's like, yeah, we have room. If you want to, if you know anyone who, who needs a room, let, let us know. <laughs> it took me one week to go, wait a minute. This sucks. <laughs> I hate this. I want to, do I want to live in the San Fernando Valley or do I want to live in Huntington beach? (laughs) I don't know. Gee, like I was out, dude. I quit my job. I drove my piece of crap truck on its very last legs down to Huntington beach. I ended up moving into what was known as the Newman house later on, uh, surrounded by Christians and kids in bands. But it was also the final kind of humbling because all those bands were bands that had opened up for the crucified. I mean, dude, now it's laughable. But when I first moved in there, no one would talk to me. Everyone was nervous around me. Like, <laughs> it was so weird. And is like, that the, and is I, that the house that we stayed at with you when I slept in the uh, van with Evan when we were on the tour? Like when you entered the door, there was a room to the right. Or was that the house? Later? The big room to the right that yeah. everyone could. Yeah, that was the Newman house. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we were there when we are on our uh, West Coast tour when we played that show with you. Yeah. We, we stayed there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was the beginning to answer your question of Stage Acre for me, really, because I got reconnected with Baloo. Uh, I, I, fir- I finally got to spend some time hanging out with Dirk, who I only kind of knew up until then, you know, um, and and realized like, uh, these people are are good. I like them, you know. And that's when I met Brandon. That's when I met like all these other guys and really got to know them, you know. And uh, one night, Dirk and and uh, Baloo. This is after the Newman House. I've moved to a couple times. Aaron Bradford and I were were roommates and we're really good friends. Uh, had moved a couple times up to Long Beach with Matt Wignall, back down to Huntington. Anyway, Dirk was one playing night, bass and uh, focused at that time. Yeah, I think Focus was kind of done though. I think they were they were either done or soon to be done. And um he, he and he and Baloo came over one night and we had been talking about doing a band and that was the, the outer circle thing actually sort of generated out of that. We all got together with Kevin Cribbs and it just became clear that the music that they wanted to play and the music that Kevin wanted to play and that me and Jesse and Kevin had been playing already on, you know, wasn't what they wanted to do. And, uh, and so that those two paths kind of split up, you know, and, um, I picked up the, the outer circle thing came back into the picture later on, but stage acre was really born right there. You know, we, they came back to the house and said, Hey, you know, I, I know you want to play punk rock and all that stuff, but, um, we want to do this. And they just handed me this stack of CDs so check this out. This is who's, this is who's the, they in that particular case. Then that's- Jeff Ballou and and Dirk. You okay. know, they had this stack of CDs, and I, I'll never forget Orange Nine Millimeters uh, Driver Not Included was in that stack, and um, I I just I had never heard anything like that, and it was this weird moment because towards the end of the Crucified, I had met this guy Brian Carlstrom. Uh, that, only good thing really that was introduced into my life by Freddie Pirro was Brian Carlstrom. And I met Brian. He was really nice to me. Um, so fast forward later to this time when Dirk's handing me these CDs and I, I'm listening to this one. Like, this is incredible. Who produced this record? You know, there it is. Dave Jordan engineered by Brian Carlstrom. Oh my gosh. What? You know, and, and that sort of, I was, that was a reason to pick up the phone and call him again. And, um, 
because right then I knew like, I think I know, I think I know how I can take all the influences that we have. Cause I still love rap music. You know, I mean, there's little elements of that on the first Dave Taker record, actually like on mm-hmm. Anathema, stuff like that, you know, it just wasn't so overt. And then right when we were kind of thinking about this and trying to, what do we want to do? We went to the very first warp tour ever and orange nine millimeter was playing quicksand was playing a huge influence in the beginning. Um, sick of it all was playing, which was obviously amazing. And, yeah. um, I think and, was uh, on that too. Also actually. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, I don't really remember. I just know that I, no doubt played in the afternoon at, yep. to this forgotten set that no one cared about. <laughs> They they opened up for L seven. I want you to think about what that means. Yeah. But I would say that one tour too in Seattle though, and I just remember standing right in the front, dead center, in front of Quicksand, and and just having my mind melt. Oh man, it was amazing. And they they headlined that one down here, and it was oh my gosh, just you're just like in awe of what is happening on stage. And, Still one know. of the tightest bands I've ever seen in my life. Like they just yeah, have like a level of un like unspoken communication, like down to the level of like, he would just kind of bend the neck of his guitar. And as he came backwards, they would just not even looking at each other, nothing. And they yeah. would just slam into the song. You know, it was crazy. I still think, you know, when I first heard tool, I, I thought, this band just sounds like a wannabe quicksand. You know, like I seriously did think that on the first, on the opiate record, I thought that when I heard it, I was like, this sounds like quicksand, you know, but anyway, we're, they were such a huge influence. And, and in my opinion, what they had done was taken the punk rock thing and they had done what everybody in punk rock wanted to do, which was master Everyone who was serious about playing music well, you know, they mastered punk rock and then they bent it to their will. And that was really the big inspiration like that Orange Nine set, which they had a show, you know, they had a set that day and they were okay. But Quicksand, you know, I had heard them before and just I wasn't ready, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm watching on stage like this is what this is where it's at right here. And then one quick side note, like there's all these kids passing around this demo, which is what gave us the idea to do a three song demo. Actually, these kids pass around this demo. You're like, you got to hear this band doing something. No one else is doing. What is it? Uh, I can't even describe it, man. Uh, they're called Deftones. I was like, dude, I freaking hate ska. Get that shit out of my face. <laughs> I hear the word tones like, and immediately uh, got they're the like, wrong impression. <laughs> no, dude, it is not. It has nothing to do with ska. And I'm like, and they're like, you just have to hear it. You have to hear it. And then sure enough, you know, they they played on that show. And I was like, dude, there's something going on here. These groups are all going in this direction. You know, this is, that was the convincing that I needed. Because Jeff and, and Dirk both came to me with those CDs and said, this is what we want to play because this is what's happening next, you know. And that's that's how Stave Zaker was born. That was 95. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, my friend, uh, one of the one of the people who had been really kind to me in, in my my really tough time there was uh, Julia Griffin. You know, she had gotten to know all of us back in the in the crucified days, and she, right when Stave Zaker was kind of forming, Julia died of a heroin overdose, and it really sort of kind of put this dark layer over everything. Um, cause I owed her, I owed her money and I hadn't paid her back. This is part of my, 
uh, part of my sad decline. Uh, <laughs> I, I owed so many people money, man. Wow. Um, but her, you know, she was just this per, this friend who had loaned me this money to, to make some t-shirts or something. And, and I, it just put this thing, like I can never go back and fix that. And I think that kind of set the tone, like, you know, the first on, on the first Days Acre album, Friction, you know, the song Stars and Clouds is about Julie. Like there was like, you know, I don't know that we were so excited about this new thing. And then just like all this gnarly crap, because it wasn't just Julie dying. It, it wasn't just the excitement of being in music again. It was the realization that I have all this crap I need to tackle and I need to do it right now or it's never going to go away. And that's why the music kind of became more introspective than you know, knives in as opposed to knives out. Oh, come on, man. You're just trying to water down the gospel. Tell the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's how that's always presented, right? It can't, it can't be an honest expression of what you're going through and what's in your heart. It's clearly, you're just trying to be more appealing to the mainstream. Yeah. And you know, the catch 22 of that is man, is that in order to answer that criticism, you have to lay the art aside. Right. You know, and and that just pissed me off all the time. That was why I was always so freaking angry with the industry. You know what I mean? It just, it just, you paint yourself into a corner, you know? It's like, and it became so similar to (laughs) politics. I know, you know. Sounds vaguely familiar. (laughs) I guess you might have some inkling of, anyway, it's so like politics, man. So why didn't you come out in, uh, you know, in condemnation of Al Qaeda, sir? Like (laughs) I never even heard of Al Qaeda. So clearly you've been ignoring what's going. You know, it's just like uh, people putting words in your mouths. You know, so why aren't you guys Christians anymore? What? (laughs) Yeah. You know. Oh yes, music, or as I like to call it, the one profession where everyone is constantly second guessing your shit. (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know it was that was this you know the the crucified ending had to happen and you know it's like i'm i've mentioned before you think you know the way things are supposed to go and then they go a different direction and you're bummed and then you realize that it it was you know sometimes it, it works out way better you know listen i'm sorry uh just in listening to all this, I, I feel like I remember a phone call where we kind of talked during that time period where you're kind of having like a rough time. I don't, you know, it's, all it's possible, but dude, it's all fuzzy at this time, but I, I'm sorry. I wasn't more there for you during that time period. Well, thank you for that. But in all honesty, dude, I really feel like I, I don't know that that was an option available to you. Right. I really think that and I mean this, I, I believe that God intended for me to be uh, on my own and to realize that, the, that I needed to just get my shit right, you know? Because yeah. I knew the whole time, I knew I was not right, you know? Sleeping around, chasing broads, you know? I never got into drugs. I never, uh, I, I wasn't like raging alcoholic. You know, people have their own addictions. Mine was myself. So, and I feel like God needed to get me to a place where I got out from under that thing. That's intense. Well, thank you for being willing to share all that. Did uh, Brian Gray, our mutual friend, Brian Gray from the blamed and Mm -hmm. uh, 
rocks and pink cement, as we mentioned yeah. earlier, and <laughs> brief, briefly in Blenderhead, played in Blenderhead at our first show. Um, yeah. uh, is Did you meet him through Brandon and that crew and all that kind of stuff? I don't or? know how. I, dude, I'm I sorry. To, I know I we're to trying to keep he, this. <laughs> did he introduce I know you we're to trying. Jeremy? Is that like, I'm, that's the connection. He, he did introduce me to Jeremy. I figured. Um, yeah. Jeremy kind of came through the Brian Gray thing, but, but you got to remember, man, uh, I think he introduced me to Jeremy. Honestly, I don't know. That part was really, really fuzzy because Brian showed up out of nowhere. And I have to say he had this garbage. I rock like a, like a rock Z firebird <laughs> yeah. car. Right. And it was just garbage. And he showed up and moved into the Newman house. In fact, you know, and he was just a mess. And Aaron Bradford was his roommate at the time. And Aaron is a total clean freak. I remember those two dudes got in a full on battle and Brian threw Aaron Bradford in between his bed and dresser, like shoved him down in there with a guitar on top of him. (laughs) Yeah. A bunch of, bunch of, uh, late teens, early twenties guys living in our house together, you know, Anyway, um, Didn't, but well, Brian, he was touring with mortal and wasn't Jeff doing that too. That's right. Yeah. He, he, maybe he came through in the mortal thing, but I remember Brian's car caught on fire on the side of the road and he just uh, left yeah. it there. I know that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you know the postscript to that story. Um, because he, he briefly, uh, he worked for Brandon for a short period of time. And then he was like, okay. basically like no call, no show <laughs> like, <laughs> like, or whatever. And, uh, Brandon used to love to tell that story because the one caught on fire, but then he had another car that broke down that he left on the side of the road. Only this time he unscrewed the license plate from it. <laughs> so, so it was like he had kind of learned like they like he abandoned the car that caught on fire but they like tracked him down through the license plate and he's like i'm not gonna let that happen again <laughs> like, like, little do you know there's a vin number on there yeah yeah oh boy Can't but yeah he, he came rabbit hole <laughs> no no he came onto the scene actually you know like brandon was hanging around a lot and uh and and uh you know, through various things that I I won't mention, you know, Brandon's character early on uh, made a big impression on me. I mean, basically, he 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 remained strong where others had failed, and uh, and I knew about it. I heard about it. I don't think he knew anyone knew, but I I know that he uh, he was he was tested, <laughs> yeah. And I know he survived, and I um. And and I always like I, that made me kind of like okay, what's this dude all about? And you know, all of those guys were kind of going, hanging out with him, and spending all this time with him. Brian was spending time with him. Aaron was spending time. Like, who is this dude that keeps like showing up? And he's uh, he's insane, you know. And he's like, what's you know? And it's got a lot of energy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I you know I had just. I had sung on the the focused bow record, and I was I don't want to get the impression that as soon as I moved to Huntington Beach, everything got better. I still had plenty of years of just flakiness. You know, Brandon Ebel actually hired me to do the artwork for Bow, and I totally blew it off, like didn't do a very good job on it at all, and still wanted to get paid. Like it's just like, God, dude, where is your brain? Well, well to man? be fair, you are well known as a uh, you know world renowned uh, graphic artist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know, man, I just, I, that, that was when that I was is trying like to next s- level helping you out, man. Props. I was <laughs> searching for an identity, you know, uh, this was before the Daysaker thing had started. Like maybe I'll be a graphic artist, but I knew nothing about it. I had never tried, you know what I mean? It just, and all of that was so new still. 93, no one, who's going to be a graphic artist when you have a computer? No one had a computer. Right. But, you know, like, um, 93, 94. So anyway, all that, because I, I feel like we're just going to keep going there. But Stavesacre started, and, and we, and that just was, that was really good for me, man. It was, it was good. I, you know, got reconnected with Brian. Brian got to do the first, actually ended up doing the first three albums. You know, that connection kind of came to fruition and was, and he became a very dear friend to me, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I don't know. It was just a completely different take on my life. And, you know, we, I actually got to tour for real and play real shows and spend time, like, really crafting songs. You know what I mean? And, uh, like, the Crucified tried to do that, but I think we were just so young that we didn't really know how yet, you know? Right. And my life intersects with a couple of those guys um, in that uh, early on when I was in Seattle, we had... Um, I'd worked on the Scattered Few show when they played at the Temple Theater in Tacoma, and Sam mm-hmm. was playing drums uh, with them at that time. And yeah. then uh, Jeremy, uh, when I came down to L.A., I, I either stayed with him or something. I don't know. I went to see the Blame play in Fresno and, uh, when he was singing, and uh, he had had some credit at a bookstore. I was trying to get a new Bible, and uh, <laughs> he used the credit that he had at the bookstore to get me a new Bible that I still have, actually. Um, Who did that? Jeremy? Jeremy did that for me. Yeah. Dude, Jeremy was a rock solid brother at one. I mean, he and I were roommates. He moved into my room at the Newman house. And, uh, you know, something I want to make very clear that people don't know yet still insist uh, upon, you know, <laughs> making statements about, I mean, they have no idea. Yeah. You know, Jeremy was a main, was, was a major reason why, Stage Acre started, but he always wanted to just cover old crucified songs and take like <laughs> he was adamant about wanting to take that the demo from the the one of the the, the garage demos that we did for the new crucified stuff and because he wanted to make aggressive heavy music, sure. you know. So and that's why he he you know when we started doing Stage Acre, he just wasn't that interested. People think like we kicked him out or something, dude. That guy straight up quit on us in the studio while we're tracking friction. Wow. <laughs> like he was like, Oh, that takes good enough. I got to go see my girlfriend, you know, who later became his wife, who later became his ex-wife. Like, you know, he just dropped off the face of the earth, man. But he was so staunchly like, like a hardcore Christian and, and, and we had great times of fellowship and I'm still convinced that one day he and I will reconnect. I have no idea how that'll happen. Cause I don't yeah. know where he's at at all, but you know, like it, he got the power of God, the title of, of a crucified song tattooed across his belly, man. It's just, yeah. you know, he was that guy and he was crazy, but you know, he left the band. Uh, and when, when he left, we were like, what are we going to do? wow, crazy would it be if we could get Sam from Scatter Few? I wonder if he's doing anything, you know? And then sure enough, he wasn't doing anything. He was now a Christian because he had never been one during the Scatter Few time. Right. And we're like, 
you know, it wasn't a re- requisite to be a Christian to be in Stavesacre, but it sure helped, <laughs> you know? <laughs> to speak and, the language, uh, at the very least. Well, just, you know, to have the fellowship. It's like it, you have the opportunity to have fellowship, you take it. And that was when, that was when, in my belief, Stavesacre truly took shape, you know? We immediately started writing for, for absolutes, which, you know, to a lot of people, even though you know, Speakeasy gets a lot of respect, a lot of people like absolutes more of all three, all three of those tooth and nail records, you know, and, and I think it has a lot to do with Sam coming on the scene and all of us getting real serious about trying to, trying to be a good band. Sure. Um, so you guys, uh, trying to figure out like where to go in that era of all that stuff um because of the book and all that i feel like a lot of people know sort of <laughs> what was happening yeah, yeah. Towards, the, towards the end of yeah. all that stuff but um like of, of that time and all those records like um like what is the most i mean i know what's most meaningful to me and i don't want to make this about me but i mean like just thinking about gold and silver and kind of that mm-hmm. uh um era of the band that music in particular meant so much to me um speakeasy and i felt like those records were so worshipful and i just remember going to a lot of the shows from that era and just having a feeling there was just some a feeling about that music at that time that that just really spoke to me in a way that a lot of music hadn't um i think it's no Mm -hmm. secret to you i was always like a huge fan uh, of the band and um everything like that so what was (laughs) what uh what was hap like what happened to go from that, from this dark period of your life to the kind of optimism of starting the band um, <laughs> to where you guys left and then did the <laughs> Nitro record and all that uh-huh. kind of stuff. <laughs> okay, listen. So we... <sighs> you put people in your life and you listen to them and despite logic... And, uh, and conviction, you just press forward. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm blaming all of everything on one person, okay? We had plenty of our own issues, and we wanted to believe what our management had been saying at the time, okay? That's crucial. It's one thing to say management steers you down a wrong road. It's another thing to admit we wanted That you bought in. Them. We bought it, you know? Yeah. And uh, there was this big thing like, you know, Speakeasy comes out. In my opinion, it's, it's, it was a great record. And I, it's one of the more proud moments I've ever had as far as music is concerned because it was relevant to everything that was going on, not only in my life, but I felt like in the lives of the people around me. And I felt like they were responding to it in that way. And that felt like something real was happening, you know? And... Right at that time, Ska washed over the earth with the blood of all the children. <laughs> Just like <laughs> took over. And, and, um, especially in the area where you guys lived. In the area that, you know, Orange County, it's just like every show, there's a freaking ska band. Kids are asking us, You're Christian? Where's your horn section? It's just like, What? <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, like, you know, we went, we went on a Supertones tour, man. So we kind of invited the vampire into the living room there, but you know, we were trying to stay busy and trying to stay paid because nobody had any money and no one could, everyone had to pay rent, you know? 
And mm-hmm. so you go on a tour like that, and, and that's not like we came off that tour rich by any stretch, sure. but we could at least pay our rent and eat food. And, you know, that was nice. But the uh, the end of all of that came just, we were so pissed about what we felt like was a shift of focus, and bands like ourselves kind of got lost. And I was told straight to my face. From the singer of a specific ska band. Mark, what do you actually want? I'm like, dude, I want to be promoted as, as a legitimate, you know, band with real potential. I want, you know, I want my songs on the radio. And uh, he, he told me right to my face, Mark, you don't really write songs that go on the radio. <laughs> you know, we yeah. do. And I'm just like, you're so full of shit, man. That's not true. <laughs> I'm listening to these songs on the radio right now. You know, we may not be playing pop songs that all the kids dressed up in suits and ties are going to love, but we're writing songs that are relevant and that need to be on the radio. Yeah. And, uh, and we need to be on legitimate tours, you know, and we felt like that wasn't happening, but you know, I'm so glad. much of that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So much of that falls on our own decisions as opposed to the label. But we wanted to blame the label for those things not happening. Yeah. And our management was more than happy to throw gas on that fire. You yeah. know, so I, I'm the glad, end of speakeasy comes. I'm glad that you brought that up because this is like the biggest catch. And, you know, far be it from me. I am certainly no apologist for record labels or the music mm-hmm. business or anything. I think I'm well on the record. Um <laughs> And <laughs> in, in, in showing my disdain for, you know, the one sided nature of the music business and, and mm-hmm. how an artist friendly it is and all that stuff and whatever. But here's the, here's the real catch 22 and also something that never gets talked about. And it's especially relevant to this. And it's just it's just the way it is. It always just comes down to economics. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. Um, it really has nothing to do with ska or punk or what's cool or what's relevant or anything it just comes down to dollars and the simple fact of the matter is um you know like in the beginning of tooth and nail for example when mxpx was kind of blowing up that just drove the ship because every time a distributor would call hey do you have that teenage politics record hey do you have that life in general Mm -hmm. record do you have whatever and that just kind of becomes on its own not not by like hey we've chosen this particular Mm -hmm. thing to be the thing it just is and so we're not stupid, so we're not going to go invest all this money, you know, yeah. that, that's coming in on this thing and, and put it in something else to take a chance. That's just that's called hedging your bets, you know. And I think um, then the next thing anybody who's seen the documentary knows that, you know, then obviously with the supertones and all that kind of stuff, that became the next thing. And then because of the nature of how that works and budgets and you're no stranger to how that works with the money coming in and all that kind of stuff, it's like. You could spend the money. Sure, we could spend the money. And there are other bands that, you know, I that I wanted to, you know, do stuff with and whatever. But then it just becomes then you're just kind of punishing that band in a way because they can never recoup that money. So then Mm -hmm. even if we spend the money to kind of try to break the band or, you know, pay to buy them onto tours and stuff like that, like I won't mention their name, but there was one particular band that I worked with that was doing really great. They were selling really well. They were kind of more in the rock kind of realm or whatever. And they had been getting regular royalty checks and thousands of dollars, you know, every quarter. And they decided they wanted to get on some of these bigger tours and they wanted to go on a bus and they, and all this stuff. And I just, I could have been more stronger to them. Like, 
please do not do that. Please do not do that. You know, they'd never yeah. really done photo shoots or any that kind of, they got this new management and they're like wanting to do all this stuff and spend all this money. I was like, you guys, I know you think this is going to be the thing that's going to take you to this next level. And you feel like you deserve it because you worked hard and everything like that, but you're literally killing your band. And yeah. of course they don't listen and they go on this tour and you know, it's like 30 K to buy them out of the tour. And then they rent a bus and everything. And you know, from that point on, they never got a penny and then they're super disgruntled and it's like somehow our fault. And, and again, yeah. you know, I'm the last person to defend this kind of stuff, but I think that's something that it's never presented that way. It's always presented as, you know, they didn't want to push us or like whatever. And it's really just the economic realities of doing business. Well, it's just business. I, I, I totally, I see that and, 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 uh, don't dispute it in any way. I think what made it tricky was it was never presented like that at that time. Sure. At least not to us. You know, there was never a sit down. Listen, you guys, we love you. Love the music that you're making, but economically, this is not going to work. That was, that conversation never happened because (laughs) there's still always that carrot out there. Yeah. Just reeling it in a little bit, you know? And you're, and, and so you, you think you're doing everything. Like I was told straight up by Brandon, um, you know, I know you're disappointed by, uh, by, by what happened after speakeasy. Um, but you know, we worked really hard on that record and, and I was like, really? Cause it seems like you just completely forgot us after the record came out. Well, we put out all these postcards and, and, uh, uh you know, direct mail, uh, advertised that that album and that that cost a lot of money that wasn't easy i'm like dude we just got off the road again for playing yet another tour for weeks and weeks and weeks we've been promoting this record ourselves you know and and instead of just easing back and going listen you know you've been working i've been working but the fact is I don't, we're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to sustain this if you do what you want to do or whatever. You know, a, just a practical face-to-face conversation never happened. Yeah. And I don't know if it, if it never happened because Tooth and Nail didn't talk to us or because Tooth and Nail talked to our management who then never said anything. And, you know, and, and honestly, I don't even care anymore. Like, yeah, it just, yeah. I'm just over it. And, you know, we parted ways with them. We parted ways with everybody. And the next thing you know, we just have nothing going on. Yeah. And, um, you know, Brandon and I kind of buried the hatchet later on when we, when, when Stage Acre came up there to do the, the, um, to finish our contract off and, and we, we redid a couple songs for the collective, like, you know, everybody had like some kind of best of written into the contracts or whatever. So we did that and that was fun. And, you know, we got to hang out with Sprinkle and, you know, yeah. see you guys and be in Seattle and track of the thing. And our new manager, you know, is trying to negotiate a new deal with us. He ends up talking to Nitro. At the time, Nitro has AFI, who are huge. We're thinking this is going to, this is what's going to take us to the next level. And then, of course, <laughs> <laughs> It just started unraveling, you know? Sure. And yeah, I had written that book in in the meantime. So we had forced our hand. We are not going to do the Christian music industry thing anymore. And so you get out there, and this is the harsh reality. You get out there in the general market, and you realize that your 30,000, 40,000 records sold in the Christian market do not translate to the general market and you are no one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a harsh reality, dude. We got out there and just, 
you know, the stigma of playing in bars or whatever, you know, the Christian people don't come to those places a lot of times. And, and uh, especially in the Midwest, it's just like, what? No, you know, and it, it just became really, really tough. And um, I don't know, somehow through all that stuff, we just, the band almost broke up like 15 times, you know, everybody had their own things going on. Some people had their, had really challenging trouble that they had to deal with. And, uh, you know, the Nitro record sort of represents all of that for me. It was just the worst time for Stavesacre as a band was that album. And sadly it kind of came through, you know, yeah, there's a couple songs on there that, that I think could have been great. Um, but of course the, the production just completely destroyed all hope of that. And, uh, you know, to think that we could have had Paul from Shiner do that album just kills me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know that it would have helped. It's been polishing a turd. I mean, seriously, everyone was so f- fractured, and 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 um, and there was definitely a, a, a missing piece to the band. Baloo had broke had had quit the band. Nobody else knows that. No one ever talks about that. I mean, they know it, but they never say it. Baloo quit the band halfway through the writing of Speakeasy because we didn't know if we were ever going to finish that album. You know, and he was, he had his own thing going on. So after all those things happen, you know, we're on the Nitro record with it's, it's us and Neil and, um, and, uh, trying to make a great album. And it just kind of just, it just wasn't. And, you know, I think after that, and it has nothing to do with Neil, Neil's great. He just, you know, he moved on to his own thing. He had been wanting to play his own, you know, a completely different style of music anyway, we got back to just being regular Stavesacre when we started doing Bull Takes Fighter. And from that point on, I think the band sort of got its little second wind, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll give you this, man. You're resilient. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of saying it, Bill. Well, I mean, I just, it, it's like, um, you know, I've only done like three of these uh, podcasts so far, and um, maybe that's the theme of like a lot of the stuff. I, I just have a lot of respect for people that can go down to these depths of just despair and just feeling like, what what have I done with my life and working these you know shitty jobs and doing all this stuff? And then you just still keep coming back, you know? It's like you just keep coming back. It's like you just can't. You just return into your vomit. Just can't take it. Yep. Got to get back in there. Got to do it kind of. It's just like not even like a choice, like no matter how much. And I, and I so relate to that. It's just like after my 10 years of Tooth and Nail and all this stuff and and just feeling like I remember like the last cornerstone I went to once everybody knew that I quit and I was leaving. No one talked to me, dude. It's just like I ceased to exist. Like I was no longer, wow. uh, you know, useful or beneficial in some way to people. You know, everybody was my best friend, man. I couldn't walk from one end of the festival to the other without getting stopped like 50, you know, I barely make it to somebody's show of people stopping me and shaking my hand and patting me on the back, you know? And it was just like cold meat locker city, man. Just like, (laughs) like, well, that guy's not going to do it. Done with him. him. Or, or even worse. Well, what, what's going to, what's going to happen with me, man? Like what, what, you know, who's going to, who's going to be my guy or who am I going to, you know? Like, oh, okay, it's all about you, man. I mean, I only went through a divorce and <laughs> almost lost my house and whatever, you know, good for you. All right. Um, but so I really, I guess I'm just saying, like, I really relate to like going, it's like, but then still it's like, oh, I, maybe I, I'll do some more music or I don't know. Just keep coming yeah. back. You can't, can't help yourself. 
No, you know, there's something that Baloo told me a long time. He's like, listen, if you don't plan on doing this for your life, you should let me know now because I'm in the wrong band. You know? <laughs> and like, and honestly, I thought that's the nuttiest thing I ever heard. Of course, I'm not going to do this my whole life. <laughs> and then he quit and I'm still in the band. <laughs> but, you know, dude, I just love making things. Yeah. You know, I, I do. I love making things. That's why I'm glutton for punishment style doing the podcast. That's why I'm, you know, dude, I've picked up uh, actual physical art again for the first time since I can't remember when. And I had been so bored with drawing and painting and whatever. And now I just, it's just, I have to have some kind of outlet or else I will, I, I don't know what to, I would do with myself. You know, I just don't know. Yeah. Um, so then what is just fill in a little bit the time period then between Bull Takes Fighter and you guys had done um, mm-hmm. like a live thing. Right. And then the well, we did. Yeah, we did stuff. Bull Takes Fighter. And then, you know, Mike Lewis and, and uh, Danny Hill, who was our manager at the time, you know, sort of decided, I think, together to do this um, this DVD. You know, we played in Dallas more consistently than anywhere. And those shows were always crazy and good. And they came, uh, you know, we, we, we shot a DVD at, uh, at, uh, the door in, in deep Ellum, uh, which is a portion of Dallas. And, you know, we felt like it's, it's, that's the thing, dude. And that's kind of was the whole theme of like the never was podcast. Like I, you, it's one thing if you're just like, yeah, man, we used to play all these shows, you know? Yeah, where were they? Oh, in my garage. They were great, you know? I really feel like we had some potential. Like, dude, you never had any potential. You played in your garage, and you never, ever tried to do anything. It's it's hard work, right? Yeah. We did the work. And like, right when you think things are going to fall apart, you do a live DVD in Dallas, and it's freaking sold out. There's a line of people around the building, and it's a blast. So, in you know... There's like this evidence to the contrary, you know, the evidence, your fears are, are, you're ready to accept them and be like, look, it's over, you know, and then, oh, boom, this is happening. So it's, it's, um, that's the weird thing. It's like a relationship music. Everybody you know, just stop encouraging me, would you? <laughs> yeah. Would you just come out and say you suck and then be done with it? Don't you understand? <laughs> I'm ready to quit. <laughs> <laughs> quit, quit telling me how much this music means to you and, and, uh, yeah. how, you know, how it got you through a hard time and how you're, <laughs> yeah, we know we did the, we did the DVD, we did the nitro record. Uh, it was a mess. Um, we, we, you know, we almost broke up after that. And then, um, did how to live we with did, the curse, which is great. Record. Well, yeah, we did bull takes fighter and bull takes fighter was, was the band being literally revived from the ashes with the four of us, me mm-hmm. and Dirk and Sam and Ryan. And some people think of Ryan as like not an original member. Dude, that guy was hanging around with us from day one. <laughs> it was everything we could do to finally just go, why, why isn't Ryan in our band? <laughs> you know, that's why he joined us in speakeasy. Not because Baloo quit. We right. were a five piece for a long time before, before Baloo quit, you know, I, didn't, I never knew that. I didn't realize that, I guess. We and he was a P and a dude. He wrote, he wrote the riff to songs like uh, "Keep Waiting." You know, wow. <laughs> he wrote Golden Silver's main riff. You know, it's just people don't understand. You know, um, that's Luca, my dog in the background. Sorry. Um, so anyway, 
we got back to what we believed at the time was the core is the four of us, you know, and there was like this outside hope that maybe Baloo would come back. We did the bull takes fighter thing. Um, you know, Roy, who, who had been, I think at tooth and nail, um, you know, got yes. a hold of us and said, uh, Hey, I'm at this label, um, century media or, you know, I, uh, they're starting a new rock label called Abacus. We want you, we, we heard the bull takes fighter thing. We want you on the, on the label. And we had been working on our own. We were going to put out a, a full length album on our own. We were just ready. To, we didn't care. We were already the, going there. And so when they, when they called us, it just seemed like, Hey, uh, what's going on here? You know? And they like, they're, we're going to put you in studio you know, with this guy, Matt Hyde, who you met, you know, before and you had really hit it off with. And, you know, we're going to track at one of the greatest studios in the world. I mean, I freaking tracked at Dave Grohl's six by six studio in in uh, San Fernando Valley. I mean, that definitely felt like something new was going on. And then once again, they just like the second we finished that album. Nitro or uh, Nitro Century Media just like just Abacus completely collapsed and they signed all these hardcore bands, which is what they weren't going to do. Mm-hmm. And they it was like they didn't want anything to do with our album at all. It was so bizarre. I don't know what happened. And so we sat down with them and said, why did you sign us? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was just like, uh we don't know. Do you want to get off the label? Yeah. Okay. Bye. And that was it, dude. It was just, and then, you know, we did the final thing, which was against the silence and Baloo finally came back in the band and, you know, it was awesome. It was fun. I think that EP is seriously pound for pound. Best thing we've ever done. Like really, I think it stands up to, you know, to anything else we've done. And it's just five songs of raw, honesty and uh you know little dvd that came with it was kind of cool and i don't know man you know i don't want to i don't want to speak for you uh but as somebody that's sort of known you uh all these years and kind of come in and out of your life at at various points and and uh it just i feel like personally just in talking to you and whatever you know i i definitely remember the angry eras of mark um (laughs) you know um, it just seems like you're like in a pretty good place personally, just like, uh, just your spirit and your disposition and everything like that. Like you just mm-hmm. seem like, like, what, what do you attribute that to, to like where you're at now in your life? After, well, I, after I mean, considering I, I, all the heretofore <laughs> mentioned, uh, disasters. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's, you never really get to a place just by one thing. I don't think too often that doesn't happen very often. But a lot of things have happened over the last seven or eight years that have been a bit of a sea change for me. I mean, obviously, getting married would be number one. You know, my wife being in my life and being a sobering voice to just be like, nope, you're full of shit right now. Stop doing that. You know what I mean? Nothing like having Um, a wife in the house to call you on all your horrendous bullshit. And she doesn't play, man. But, you know, she she does it because she loves me and she doesn't want me to regret something, you know. Um, that and then, you know, somewhere along the line during the, the, the Stays Acre um, How to Live with a Curse thing, I got to know Jason Martin and he became a really good friend to me. And, of course, you know, we did the Neon Horse stuff 
Uh, he produced the white lighter thing later, but, but more than that, like it's just, it's one, it's one thing to know a bunch of Christian dudes, you know, it's another thing entirely to have a, a Christian brother whom you are around on a regular basis and can, you know, just get it all out there. You know, I mean, like obviously you and I are, are lifelong friends and will remain. So, you know, um, it's just people like that. I'm even honestly, dude, I'd say we talk more now over the last few years than we had for probably 20 years before that. No question. You know, I think what happens is, is I hate to admit it is it's like so generic, but you grow up, dude, you freaking grow up and realize, you know, I don't know. I spent all this time trying to sort of craft this mysterious persona. And then one day I woke up and went, you're not mysterious at all, dude. (laughs) (laughs) You are not mysterious in any way. You have a way better time when you're just shooting the shit and, 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 and goofing off, you know? And I learned that, dude. I learned that during the neon horse records, man. I seriously, I had a blast making those things. Like, this is way more fun. I think uh, I can summarize that as basically as saying that somebody who I know on a personal level to laugh a lot and have a really good sense of humor to the outside person, uh, you seem pretty humorless. <laughs> and I'll give a, I'll give a, I'll give a perfect example of where that's true. I have a distinct memory of when you got when Stacey played it. I love this story, by the way. Uh, when you uh, played at South by Southwest, and Mike Lewis and I were there. Uh, do you remember this? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and you you had your like what I call like your game face on, basically like very serious. We're playing. This is music. This is serious business. I'm up here. I'm you know delivering the goods here. And uh, and all Mike and I were trying to do was just make you laugh. That's all. That was like our mission in life was just to stand in front of you, get you to crack a smile, get you to laugh. Like it was just an epic battle of like, listen, before this show is over, we are going to get Mark to grin from ear to ear in front of these old people and get them to see the mark that we all know, Mr. Happy, Mr. Laffy up here. And, uh, <laughs> and every time you turn around, you just it was almost like you're just gritting your teeth or whatever. And so the technique that we used. Uh, to, to make this happen was every time we get a little bit quiet, we would just go play better. It was like our heckle. <laughs> we just like the song yeah. would end, the clapping would die down. And then, it, and then it was, then it was like, it was like, it's like play better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we succeeded in getting you, you to smile. Yeah, That's you, a proud moment. for I me. remember. Um, Look, everybody, there's a person in there and he, he knows how to smile. It's funny, man. You know, go back to the very first Dave Zaker record. We're in the studio, uh, you know, we're trying to do this thing. It's a very serious, blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, and, uh, MXPX, who we ended up doing our first two tours with, and they were, became really good friends. They're at the studio. And then, uh, our friend Daryl from Upside Down Room, I think was the name of his band. Yep. He's there, um, with our buddy Cloud. And, so it's Jeff Klaus, Daryl, it's MX guys, and we're trying to do this one song. And uh, it actually was Stars and Clouds, and it's like a really hard song for me to sing. And I was losing my mind, right? Losing my mind. And <clears throat> Daryl, who's just like this kind of just chill dude, he just goes, man, it's just rock and roll, man. It's wrong. And I remember that even now, like when I start taking things too seriously, like, dude, 
in your brain, it's, it's, this is, this makes perfect sense, but you have to stop and go, dude, that's really not the reality. Everybody else is looking at you going, what the hell's wrong with this guy? You know, what's wrong with this guy? (laughs) What's he, what's he so grumpy about? You know, and it it took me, it just took me 15 years to actually accept that as a truth. (laughs) I'm not mysterious. You know, mysterious Mark can't lead a podcast. Mysterious Mark can't write children's books or sing songs like Neon Horse Records. I, you know, Serious Mark doesn't do that crap. Now, dude, I just, it's just way more interesting to me to be uh, uh, approachable or or not standoffish is maybe a better way. You know what I mean? Or, yeah, just not being a dick. It's, it's, it's way more fun <laughs> than just not be a jerk. This three, the three hours was worth it just, if anything, to lift back the veil of the curtain that, <laughs> hey, everybody, Mark's happy. He's happy. Yeah. Yay! Yay! I'm happy. <laughs> so listen, it's been three hours. Yes, it's been awesome. It's been plenty. You I'm know sure. I love you. I do. It's been incredible. You. I'd like to. I'd like to end with uh, four questions I've prepared. <sighs> I'd like to refer to this as the Mark Solomon Lightning Round. I'd like all the listeners to know Mark has no idea what I'm about to ask him. I per- personally prepared these questions. Um, here we go. Ready? Are you ready for the lightning I just, round? I'm going to warn you about the lightning round. If this hurts my feelings, I'm coming after you. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Let's do it. I promise it. This is good. All right. Ready? ready. First question. Is the song Minuteman from the album Speakeasy about your personal struggles with premature ejaculation? Yes or no? No. <laughs> that sounds like a Mike Lewis, Bill Power combination right there. <laughs> true or false are you sure you're sure that's not what it's about? positive okay. yes okay true or false you once had a job at a hotel where you had to wear a wig 100 percent true true or wig would you rather a crawl through broken glass on your hands and knees or b have a discussion with pat nobody about obamacare <laughs> uh a because in A, I would survive. In B, Pat would, as he said on Facebook, put me in the sights of his gun and uh, take care of my pinko ass or something. Like <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. And then the last question is a multiple choice. This is a four, four answers. Okay. Uh, what, is the, what is the all-time greatest heckle? Is it A, you suck, <laughs> B, play the one the drummer knows, C, do you even want to be here <laughs> or, or, or D play better? That's a, you suck. <laughs> B play the one the drummer knows. C, do you even want to be here or, or D play better? It's uh hands down D play better. It's good. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, man. Take care. See, wasn't that fun? Mark isn't the sad clown he pretends to be after all. No, no, achievers. Don't be fooled by that dark exterior. They don't call him Rainbow for nothing. I'm kind of sad this thing is over. Well, not too sad. I talk to Mark on the phone pretty much every day. You should follow Mark on Facebook and Twitter at The Twilight's Own. Mark has his own awesome podcast called Never Was. His first two episodes were a two-parter with yours truly. Go to ineverwas.com and follow the podcast link. He's also on iTunes. 
And uh, Mark's most recent music project, it's called White Lighter. We didn't really get into that, but he has a new album out now on Northern Records, and it's awesome. Uh, the music you're going to hear after I'm done shooting my mouth off is the song Next Age by Stavesacre from the Bull Takes Fighter EP that Mark described in the interview as the best work that the band ever produced. I'll let you be the judge. You can follow Urban Achiever on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Friendster, just kidding, at Urban Achiever PC. You can subscribe on iTunes and the iTunes Store under Podcasts. And as always, you can stream or download episodes at UrbanAchieverShow.com. Uh, I also have all the episodes up at BillyPower.com, my website, where you can join my email list, see my discography, and uh, generally inundate yourself with all kinds of useless information about me, your host. Hey, thanks for listening. Keep up the good work. I'm proud of you. Until next time. Be careful, okay?